0: Bridget. And this is Annie. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. Now today, I wanted to give a quick update on a topic that me and Emily explored uh, maybe a year ago, which is the women of white supremacy. I had a chance to go to a, uh, I guess, I'm going to call it a Nazi rally here in Washington, D.C. It was a group called Unite the Right, who is fronted by Jason Kessler. And I went as part of a delegation of another podcast on this network called Behind the Bastards, which if you have not listened to, you should listen to it. And if you want to hear all the stuff that went down at this Nazi rally, you should definitely check it out. This rally was kind of absurd. I mean, it was... Not something I ever thought I'd be doing in the year 2018 was going to a Nazi rally in my own hometown. But here we are. That's the climate that we're in. Yeah. And the district spent $2.6 million on policing and other costs that were related to Sunday's rally and other costs related to the August 12th rally and the associated counter protest, according to a preliminary estimate from the city government. So costs a lot of money. Yeah, and think about this. In the end, only about thirty to forty Nazis showed up. So that means that the city spent two point six million on policing. That's more than eighty six k per Nazi. That is so much money. Yeah, that is ridiculous amount. Yeah, um, the rally was a weird experience for me. It was almost I, I would have moments of it where I would just sort of, kind of almost like leave my body and look around and be like, wow, I am at a Nazi rally in 2018 in my hometown. This is wild. Um, One thing I was really surprised by was the amount of women. Um, In terms of the women that I saw on the Nazi side, and it was very, in case you're curious, how did you know who was who? It was very obvious who the Nazi people were and who were the counter-protesters because the Nazis were the one that had police protection on all sides. Like There was a literal wall of police around them at all times. Uh, and so I was actually surprised. There were of these like thirty to forty people who were there. There was a smattering of women um, who who were who were marching with the Nazis. And as you're going to hear in the episode, this should not be terribly surprising. Although I did find it surprising. But what was sort of heartwarming was that there were so many women, particularly white women, marching with the counter protesters. And so while I was surprised to see a few women with the Nazis, there were way more women. Um, you know, counter-protesting, and a lot of them were white women. And so I was really kind of happy to see so many women taking a active role in, you know, saying no to white supremacy, saying no to, you know, Nazis marching in our town. Um, I actually bumped into one uh, Stuff Mom Never Told You listener in the crowd, and here's what she had to say. <laughs> um, so yeah, I just wanted to know, like, why are y'all here? Like, why, why, are you, why did you come out to the protest today? Do you want me to answer?
1: Yes. I just felt like it was really important to voice my opinion and let racist people know that they're not welcome and they're not supported and my lo- my voice is louder. And they're not the future. Hell yeah.
0: Do you think it's especially important for women to be here?
1: Yes, I think so, because I think a lot of what they stand for is definitely anti-woman, um... And so, yeah, I think it's really
0: important to voice my opinion. So, yeah, I mean, it was a tense day. It was, um, like, the absurdity of it was not lost on me. I had a few moments where I was very tense and very angry and very upset. It was a very visceral day. Um, but this is what we have to deal with. Like, like who would have ever thought in 2018 this would be such a, a big problem? But here we are. I certainly never thought that we'd be dealing with this. Um, but we hope that you check out the Behind the Bastards episode to hear more about, about the experience. And in the meantime, here is the episode about women and white supremacy.
2: Now, today we are called to this topic, unfortunately, because of the horrific demonstration of terrorism and white supremacy and Nazism on display in Charlottesville not too long ago. Uh, We couldn't get into the studio soon enough to cover this topic, but I wanted to not only pay honor to the tragic death of Heather Heyer in that horrific day in Charlottesville, but also talk honestly about the white supremacy movement here in the United States isn't as male-dominated as we like to think it is. Isn't that right, B?
0: That's so right. Um, in doing a lot of research for this episode and then also just in having eyes and being a person that exists in the world, I think we see that women have a have a role in white supremacy, and unpacking that and getting to the bottom of that can be really hard. Um, I also just want to say, as tragic as you know, the loss of life in Charlottesville was. I think it's important to lift up that life lost while also understanding that so many black and brown folks have been violently killed uh, because of white supremacy. And I don't want to frame it as because this white woman got killed, we now have to talk about racism in a real way when it's really a larger, you know, problem.
2: Yeah. I mean, Black Lives Matter, right? I think we can start there by saying... That there have been far too many lives lost in because of the movement around white supremacy and because of our our nation's really uncomfortable history with this, I think there's a lot of uncomfortable white folks out there right now um, who are forced to reckon with this when we see Nazis marching without hoods, when we see what you know these tiki torch wielding, collar shirt wearing, average white guys walking through the streets proudly professing their hatred. It really forces, I think, a lot of white folks to wake up and recognize white supremacy is alive and well in a way that's easier to ignore when you're not on the receiving end of that kind of persecution.
0: I think that's so true. Um, In the aftermath of Charlottesville, um, something that I was sort of really taken by was this rush to have, you know, slogans like, this is not us. Right. And I get that sentiment. But you know what? this is us, this is America, this is white, this is the country that we've built, this is the stuff our country was founded on. And saying this is not us is a way of removing it and making it less real. But a lot of folks of color don't have that option.
2: Exactly. And I think for a lot of us women, it can be tempting to look at these photos that are predominantly male, right? These are mostly men who are marching in the street and think, what are all these angry white guys you know, feeling victimized about. And that belies the, the fact that behind those photos, there are white women at home, you know, cooking a lovely meal for their white man to come home from that march to consume. Or there are mothers and sisters. And there are lots of women that have been instrumental in the movement for white supremacy, not just today, which we're going to talk about, but historically.
0: Yeah, and even with the guy who you know drove his car into the protests at Charlottesville, when they interviewed his mother, you really got the sense that she had sort of turned a blind eye to something toxic that was brewing in her own son because she maybe did not want to confront it and didn't fully understand it, so she just let it go.
2: Right. And so there are lots of different levels to people's complicitness with white supremacy, their involvement with or perpetuation of white supremacy that we want to unpack today specifically focusing on women's involvement in white supremacy historically and in the present day. One of the first articles that came to mind when I started talking about this on Twitter a couple weeks ago now was from Genevieve Hatch for the Huffington Post who wrote, it wasn't just white men who participated in the Unite the Right rally. In that article, she says, quote, white supremacy is indeed rooted in racism and misogyny, but white women have historically enabled racism, even if it came with the cost of misogyny. And in Charlottesville, many yet again chose to maintain their white privilege by choosing subordination to white men over solidarity with people of color, which I thought was a really interesting psychological choice. This idea that in the white supremacist movements, historically, there's been a lot of patriarchy involved. There's been a very clear delineation between men's roles and women's roles, historically and today. That's where a lot of the um, sort of moral family values, part of the the far right movement in the United States in modern history, has said, we want women to be free to stay at home. We want women to be free uh, to be homemakers and really relegated to that domain. Even in the KKK, they said, no, we appreciate that you're pro-white supremacy women, but we don't want you involved in leading this movement, per se. There was resistance there. Right.
0: I think that idea that women, that their role traditionally in supporting these kinds of movements is by creating a stable domestic situation at home so the men can be on the front lines, you know, doing Nazi stuff. Right.
2: (laughs) Exactly. And I I hope that we can have this conversation in the way that we usually do, which is by poking a little bit of fun at things and having a laugh in the face of this really insane stuff that's happening today. But I hope that you listeners know that this doesn't mean we're making light of the subject.
0: Yeah, I mean, just in my own personal life, being a woman of color, there's this old adage of laugh to keep from crying. And, you know, not everybody embraces that and that is fine. But I think that as folks of color our senses of humor have have helped us persevere through so much. And I've gotten a lot of kicks out of making fun of Nazis the last few days. Um, it's pretty easy. A lot of them are ridiculous. <laughs> Absolutely, Bridget.
2: And I want to bring it back to the point that women have long been involved, like you said, especially in the domestic sphere, in perpetuating the movements around white supremacy. In fact, women were responsible for the erection of many of those Confederate statues that were paying homage to the Civil War Uh, generals involved in the rebellion from the South. So all those uh, mass fabricated statues that we've seen come down and crumble in a surprisingly simple fashion when they tumble to the ground, uh, those were mass produced and put up thanks to the very organized ladies who lunch of the South. Really, this was like Southern women were at the forefront during the Jim Crow era of of erecting these monuments to remind folks of color uh, who they really value.
0: And, you know, I got to say, I grew up right outside of Richmond, Virginia, um, on going to school right near Monument Avenue every day. And if you're ever in Richmond, it's a, you can't walk down the street without... Constant reminders that you are in the former capital of the Confederacy. Wow.
2: So, some of the best journalism that I've seen that really unpacks the history of women's involvement in white supremacy has been written by Laura Smith. She wrote in New York Magazine's The Cut an article called The Truth About Women and White Supremacy. She's also a staff writer for Timeline.com, and we're thrilled that Laura was able to join us here today.
3: Thanks for having me, and thanks for the kind words about the article.
2: Well, it was really, really eye-opening, I know, for both of us. Can you tell us, Laura, what is the truth? What is the sort of untold story behind women's involvement in the rise of white supremacy?
3: Well, a couple of things. It's sort of complicated, is the short answer. Um, and the longer answer is that white women have always been involved in white supremacy, whether it was a more subtle role um, or whether they had a more public face, um, as they did in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. So that era was sort of the heyday of the Ku Klux Klan. And um, they had their own autonomous arm during that period. So it was called the WKKK.
2: Right, for um, women's Ku Klux Klan, right? Yes. Yeah.
3: Um, and, I mean, uh, uh, one thing to keep in mind as we're talking about this is like I've heard criticisms that what we're saying is that women deserve more blame than men. And that's not really what we're arguing, but what, what we're saying when we say that we need to look at the role of white women in white supremacy and racism in this country, what we're saying is that we need to look at it as a system wide issue that racism and white supremacy in this country are not, you know, just cross burning and the sort of more, um, like, picture-worthy, like, uh, flashier, like, news, flashier type things. It's really much more that it's woven into society, and women are a part of society. And so if we're not acknowledging the role that women are playing, then we're not acknowledging that it's woven into the fabric of society. I mean, I think that when we, when we see something really traumatic happening, it's really tempting to rely on gender tropes and say you know, and sort of revert to this idea as like, like you said, like women being the moral center or having more high ground or being, you know, the center of the home and love and all of those things. And that's, you know, it's a really old fashioned idea. It's a, it's a Victorian idea. It was an idea before, before the Victorians, you know, um, that women are somehow more pure and, you know, we've, as a society, I think largely rejected that idea, um, Because it led to a lot of horrible things, like women being sexually repressed and other things like that. And, you know, and really was unfair to the fact that women are complicated human beings with complicated desires and all of these things. And, you know, but we are seeing, and it is really tempting to say, no, women have nothing to do with violence. Um, And like I, you know, like I was saying earlier, I think that to not acknowledge that is to not acknowledge the violence that's inherent. society and at least on behalf of you know white people and people of power it's really tempting to look at the pictures of the WKKK and be really like focused on that but what we also have to remember is that when the WKKK ended the women who were active in that you know they went back into the school board and they were you know a part of local and national politics so and that is you know the pictures of that are less flashy but that is important as well.
2: Absolutely. And there's a beautiful connection that you really highlighted in your piece for timeline.com. The headline was, the KKK started a branch just for women in the 1920s and half a million joined, which I thought was jaw-dropping as a, you know, just from the headline on forward. But in that piece, you draw this connection that I found really interesting between women's suffrage and the early successes of women's liberation in the 1920s to this sort of warped rise of women's power when it comes to the movement for white supremacy and the KKK. Can you tell me more about that connection?
3: Yeah, I mean, that's like the super weird thing about this whole thing is that, you know, after suffrage, when, when women won the right to vote, they became more politically engaged and they felt empowered to do this. And so women with racist and nativist ideologies were looking for other ways to channel you know, their ideology into political organizations and things like that. So, you know, and they did it under the guise of, you know, concern about education and upholding the American way, which of course we know is code for, you know, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant way, you know. And so they were really active against Catholics. So not just black people. In the 1920s, KKK was really focused on immigrants um, and know, increasing number of immigrants who are coming to this country. So yeah, I mean I think it's this really strange thing where it was kind of a weird form of feminism. Mm.
2: Yeah. Damn. Let's all just take a beat to let that sink in.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have to say I can't help but draw parallels to that today. That sort of um white women's white women's political power being used in some really toxic ways that just mm-hmm. uh, you know further really toxic stuff under the guise of care about national security or I care about my family's education. I see the same, that same rhetoric being used to sort of gift wrap really toxic political ideology um, into something that's a little bit more palatable for women. Yeah,
3: that's exactly right. I mean, we're seeing the exact same thing, like the family values movement is in many ways, you know, very thinly veiled racism, you know, and there's a lot of talk about immigrants and crime and other things. And I think, you know, one of the sort of depressing things about being a history writer is that you just see the same things cropping up again and again and again.
2: It's scary. I mean, what what are the lessons learned that we can draw from the 1920s because what what you really highlighted for me in your writing is that women were hugely responsible for the expansion of white supremacy. It's not just that the WKKK was this tiny offshoot. It's that they were extremely effective, were they not? Well, I think they
3: were effective. And I think the reason, I mean, it's still like pales in comparison. I think the KKK in that period was 4 million. But I think the thing that we need to look at is the ways in which their messaging is still being used. Mm. So in the more palatable forms of their messaging that are still being used, which is, what you guys were just pointing out about, you know, the family values stuff. Um, so, so, one of the lessons that we need to take away um, from the WKKK is we should be looking at the less obvious symbology that they were using. So, not the burning crosses, because those are really recognizable, but what are the lesser recognizable forms of racism that still permeate our culture? Um And I think we see that in a lot of the, you know, MAGA messaging and, you know, make America great again. Like, what is that code for? I think right. Code for make America white again um, and other things like that. So I think we need to it's almost like we need to look less at the like white coats because those are such obvious symbols and look at the systemic, you know, like less easily identifiable forms of white supremacy that exist today.
0: Definitely. I definitely see this temptation, and I, and I get it. It's very understandable. This temptation of, of a lot of folks to look at those more obvious symbols of white supremacy and racism that you were just talking about, you know, burning crosses and Nazi salutes and things like that. And in a kind of way, even though those images are very jarring, they allow people to sort of disassociate because they can look at those things and say, I'm not that. I'm not burning a cross. I'm not wearing a swastika. I'm not, you know, doing a Nazi salute in the street, therefore, and and, and neither is my son, neither is my husband, neither is my brother, neither is, you know, my good guy friend. Nobody in my sphere is doing that. And it kind of allows them to make that other and make it something they don't have to deal with because it's so removed from their day to day. And they can then make themselves believe that they are not an agent of white supremacy, even if they kind of are. Yeah. Exactly,
3: exactly. It provides a lot of cover for people to then subtly enact racial, racial, you know, policies that are harmful. So like a great example of this is urban renewal. It sounds great. Like who doesn't want the city to be renewed? That sounds like a really great idea. But what that often means is taking homes away from black people. So to go to the Charlottesville example, um, uh, another piece I wrote for Timeline was about how Charlottesville had a thriving black community called Vinegar Hill And it was demolished in the 1960s as a part of an urban renewal project. And it was, you know, essentially marketed to people as we're going to clean the city up. And what that meant was closing Black businesses, taking away Black black owned houses and things like that.
2: Wow. And so just knowing the history of how cities are legislating and on whose behalf they're sort of crafting the future... I think it says a lot about the the racial climate in that community. And it's a good example of racism or white supremacy isn't the equivalent of marching through the streets with a tiki torch in a a white supremacy rally. It can also be baked into our politics, as you're saying, and into our policies, uh, you know, starting from the top on down.
3: Exactly.
2: When you mentioned the Make America Great Again messaging, I'm looking back at some of the slogans you referenced that were used by the WKKK way back in the 1920s and can't help but draw comparisons to what you're describing. They said things like, Are you interested in the welfare of our nation? As an enfranchised woman, are you interested in better government? Should we not interest ourselves in better education for our children? And then you went on to describe that they organized parades and food drives with the benefit funneled right back into clan families. And joining the Klan meant, you know, proving yourself as pure and Aryan and non-communist and non-Protestant and all those things. And also being uh, vouched for by multiple clan members, too. So this was very much an insular supremacist society that watched out for one another. Right. And so that, that's a positive framing of a totally bigoted act.
0: Well, just to add on to that, just recently online, I saw an actual flyer for a white supremacist organization that used that exact same framing of, you know, concern about education, your children, um, preserving your, ide- your cultural identity, um, things that all sound great until you step back and say, wait, this is a white supremacist organization. right.
3: Exactly, and, and so much of what we're seeing... I mean, I live in Berkeley, and I work in San Francisco, and last weekend, you know, there were two marches that were organized here, and what you saw people organizing around what the alt-right claimed to be organizing around, the so-called alt-right, um, because, you know, there's an argument that we should just call them what they are, which is white supremacists, and not, you know, validate them with a, a less potent term, the alt-right. Um, but what you saw them organizing around was free speech, you know, and I think that it's really important that we not buy into that messaging. So what they're doing is they're making it about free speech and they're choosing, oh, that's the message that we're going to organize on because everybody can get behind free speech. You know, it's, in, it's a right that we can all defend and no one would be against that. So it's, it's a really smart PR move, you know, it's, and, you know, the right has, and, you know, white supremacists particularly have done a good job of packaging their really abhorrent messages in packaging that is more appealing to everyone.
0: That's that's so right. I wanted to go back to a point that you made earlier just a minute ago um, about this framing of white supremacists versus the alt-right or Nazis. Um, something that I've noticed, and I noticed this very, very early on, and a lot of people in the media got flack for it, was this idea that when the alt-right first kind of entered the cultural zeitgeist, there are all these articles about, oh, they're dressed so fancy, and Look at Richard Spencer's haircut. He certainly is a tidy dresser. And it sort of made this very toxic, messed up political ideology palatable in this way by highlighting the fact that these white supremacists were not wearing hoods. They were wearing suits and ties and tidy haircuts. They're even in the White House now. Right, exactly, right. exactly. Yeah. Um, I Yeah, I'm wondering if you can speak to that. Like, What do you think was going on with that move? to rebrand from, you know, a Nazi or a white supremacist to, quote, the alt-right with a tidy haircut, but still a Nazi. <laughs> right. Well,
3: not just a tidy haircut, but,
0: like, a hip haircut, you know? Right, yeah, a so, cut. Yeah, I've yeah. dated some dudes with that same cut. And, Macklemore you know,
2: ditched the haircut. He had to go on Twitter and, like... Basically, disown his haircut. I feel like a lot of
0: dudes in Brooklyn and Oakland have to be like, "Guys, I've always had this haircut. I'm not a exactly. Nazi. Exactly. <laughs> I just really like it high and tight." It's so funny. I saw a poster at
3: at the counter demonstration in Berkeley this weekend, um, and it was a guy, you know, who was demonstrating against uh, white supremacy, and he said, uh, "Give gay people their haircut back."
0: <laughs> I saw that That's amazing. amazing. There are all these other kind of strange accoutrements of modern day white supremacy: New Balance sneakers. Like, imagine your your crappy, toxic political ideology having a preferred footwear. Like what is happening? I did not. I missed the memo on oh, that. one.
2: yes. Poor, poor New Balance. That puts them in a weird position. Yeah, I mean, I think
3: that this, like, all of this, gets to the point that like a lot of this is packaging, and we have to be really careful when we're looking at it and say you know, what's behind the packaging? What are they actually selling? You know, and it's behind the veneer of the New Balance and, you know, the, like, hipster do is blatant white supremacy, sexism, um, nativism, nationalism, all of that.
0: How can other people get better? Because I've definitely seen even outlets that you would think would would get it right. Um, Mother Jones comes to mind. Washington Post comes to mind. They did get swept up in this branding and this great PR of... You know, who are these dapper new Nazis storming into town? How can right. what, what can the media do to be better?
3: So I think a couple of things. I think that if they're going to write about a protest or counter protest, they should actually be there. Um, there was a really alarming Washington Post article that I thought really mischaracterized the nature of the counter protest that happened in Berkeley recently, and I think that. You know, just have to, like, as journalists, be vigilant as saying, looking at what's being presented and then going a step further and asking what is behind that and what is the true intention, true nature of this group or whatever else. And it's really tempting, especially when violence is involved, um, to quickly leap to conclusions and I think that it, that must be resisted at all costs you know, it's up to journalists to call things as they are, not as they
2: think. We're so grateful for Laura for joining us and spending some time sharing really her expertise in the history behind women's involvement in white supremacy. When we come back, we're going to talk about how the movement for white supremacy and unfortunately women's involvement in that movement perpetuates today. Stay with us after this quick break. We are back, and buckle up, white folks, especially, because it's about to get even more uncomfortable. I know that this can be a really tough topic to get a little self-critical around racism in America and white supremacy and the institutions and sort of lattice work of white supremacy that persists in our country— But this is not something that is relegated to hood-wearing, cross-burning, tiki-torch-wielding people marching through the streets. It's just not always that overt.
0: It's not always that overt. And if there was one thing I would want to impart on people about racism is you don't need to be burning a cross on someone's lawn or wearing a swastika shaved into your head to perpetuate some really toxic stuff on race. Racism is a system. We all have, you know, a role to play in these systems that kind of control our lives and that our country was founded on. And even if you're someone who says, "Oh, well, I don't have a problem with black people or I don't have a problem with immigrants or you think of yourself as someone who's good or someone who quote doesn't see race, we all have which, which is not it's helpful, un- unhelpful. <laughs> it's thing. not a thing.
2: But yeah. we
0: all have a role in this because we all live in society.
2: Exactly. And you know what? One of the best resources I found on this is actually called the Racism Scale, which was put out for free along with some a bunch of educational resources that you can find at racismscale That's W E E B L Y. Dot com, which is really a labor of love by a few groups formed around social justice and some activists who put together this scale that they never intended to go viral but has in fact gone viral since Charlottesville because it really beautifully and visually describes the sort of sliding scale of racist beliefs that you might catch yourself experiencing on occasion now, this is us calling you in, as we've discussed in a recent episode, not calling you out, but calling you in, and especially uh, as someone who presents white, calling in my white fellow women and men to think critically before we jump to action to help other people, to help folks of color. Let's begin by doing the really hard work of self analysis and self critique by looking at
0: this sliding scale. And thinking about
2: where you might
0: lie. Yeah, I think this scale is a really useful tool. Um, One of the things I really like about it is that it lays out what you might think of as, of course, that's really racist and messed up. Like, I would kill a person because they were black or whites are the superior race. But it also goes to a spectrum where it's these smaller, more subtle forms of racism and things that you might even catch yourself saying from time to time. Things like, how am I privileged if I was born poor? or I just don't like the ghetto, or it was just a joke, or uh, what about reverse racism? If you find yourself thinking these things, these are actually not the most productive and useful thoughts when you're thinking about um, institutions like white supremacy.
2: Yeah, the thing I love about this is that you don't have to be a terrorist or an overt racist to fall on this scale. There really is a huge extent to the scale that was around denial, things like, well, racism is no longer a thing all the way to feeling like a white savior who has to come in and save the day or this justification of being woke, Uh, this idea that there's, you know, that love conquers all this, like, can't we all just get along, kumbaya, post-racial society stuff. And something that I think is really, really important that we dive deeper into, which is known as the performative ally. Now, once you get beyond the performative ally, the person who might, I don't know, wear a safety pin just to show everybody that they're not a racist in the era of Donald Trump in the White House, once you get beyond that sort of performative uh, allyship, which is really all about you, the ally, making sure everyone knows that you're a good person, that's where we can get to true awareness around privilege and its continuous impact in society and real lasting allyship.
0: And to talk more about allyship and what that looks like when it's being done in a thoughtful way versus a not so thoughtful way, we're really pleased to be joined by Marissa Janae Johnson. She's a co creator of the Safety Pin Box, along with Leslie Mack, and they're amazing digital activists and really rad black women that you should definitely be following on Twitter and listening to. Marissa, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So, Marissa, first of all, tell me about Safety Pin Box and why you and Leslie created it.
1: Yeah, so, you know, we're three years into this Black Lives Matter movement, and I feel like, in general, we're in, like, a soul-searching period where people are really looking for direction in the movement, and one of the major problems that hasn't been solved in the movement is we, most of the um, people in the movement, primarily black women, black queer folks, um, are really struggling to figure out the sustainability piece of this movement because when everything you know, sort of popped off with the Ferguson uprising and with the the murder of Mike Brown, everybody was running sort of off of pure emotion (laughs) and adrenaline. Um, But here we are three years later, Donald Trump is um, president, and people are needing to find out more sustainable avenues for doing this work. So that's the context that me and my co-founder Leslie come out of, is seeing, you know, activists around us who who will be on MSNBC one day and who we know um, can't afford to buy groceries that week. And there seemed to be no solution. And so that's the context that we came out of. And then the election of Donald Trump happened. And we saw this overwhelming sort of, like, emotion and, like, fake or maybe not fake uh, shock from quote-unquote liberals or well-to-do white people. Like, how does this happen? And and there was a lot of, like, um, and I think still is a lot of uh, people emoting all over the place of, like, oh, no, we have to stop this. And what me and Leslie saw uh, right off the bat was that uh, people didn't know what to do or how to actually respond. And one of, the, one of the ways that we knew that one of the greatest symbols that we saw of this um, following the election of Donald Trump was the safety pin fad, which was basically uh, imported from the UK, which is basically this idea, this idea that you know white liberals or good meaning white people would wear a safety pin on their like lapel or their shirt or whatever. And that would signal to everyone else who was around, including, like, uh, a Muslim woman, you know, who was being a victim of a hate crime or a gay person or a black person or who was in danger or whatever, that um, that they were a safe white person and that they would intervene. And this, this fad was pretty laughable to, uh, to a lot of uh, people of marginalized identities, and particularly black women, because it felt very performative, and, and, and a lot of people, when you talk to them who were uh, pro safety pin, you'd be like, Cool, what's your safety plan for when someone attacks someone in front of you? And they didn't have a plan.
2: Yeah.
0: So
1: it was basically just virtue signaling to other white people.
2: Yeah.
0: So, Marissa, Mar- I have to say, I took me- a little flack on this very show for being skeptical of safety pins.
2: Well, we've laughed about them
0: here. People, yeah, haven't we've, we? we've laughed about them, and people. Don't like that. People got You're very. De- people get defensive when you yeah. call out their. I mean, I hate to say it. Their shallow, empty attempt at signaling virtue.
1: Well, the other piece about this. I mean, that was the first piece that happened. Leslie and I were in Jamaica while this was going down. The second piece was when we saw white people commodifying the safety pin, and selling three hundred dollars safety pin necklaces.
2: Right. <laughs> on Etsy, right, right. right. Yes. Yeah, And
1: and even now, you know, we saw Pantsuit Nation with, like, $70 branded Pantsuit Nation leggings. <laughs> and we're like, okay, where is all this money going to? Is this money going to those who are directly affected? And so basically white people, as white people do, we're making money off of the emotional <laughs> response to it. And, like, n- very little, pro- and more likely than not, none of that money was right. going back directly to who was most affected. So that's kind of how we came up with the idea to kill two birds with one stone. Why don't we um, create a product to educate white people on what kind of tangible actions they can take and let's use a considerable amount of that money to directly financially support activists on the ground.
0: Yeah, so I love that so much. Um, I just wanted to lift up something that you said in that, is this idea that after Trump got elected, it was sort of a spectrum of kind of fake shock by maybe well-meaning whites, were like, how could this happen? And then sort of this sort of performative safety pin thing. And then this last kind of gross thing of commodifying that, that, that ally performance. Um, and so I'm curious, what does it look like to be a good ally? If you're a white person who is well meaning and, you know, disgusted by racism and blah, 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 what do you how do you avoid falling into this trap of having it be either A, very performative without actually having a, a tangible, you know, metric for what it looks like when you actually do something helpful or without having it be like this emotional thing. That's all about you and how sad you are.
1: Right, right. Well, one of the things I like to say is there are no good white people. Um, and I mean that very
2: specifically, huh. and that one of the things yeah. Wait, that can you explain hearing, that? Um, can you explain that a little bit for yeah, as a as a <laughs> yeah. No, I'm going Im- immediately feeling defensive, white person <laughs> on behalf of all the defensive white <laughs> listeners that we have. Yeah, don't
1: just it's fine, defensive white person. Just let me finish. <laughs> I'm explaining it right.
2: Okay, now. okay, I'll, I'll stop. Uh, but I'll be very clear.
1: There, there are no good white people. Um, and one of the things that I encourage uh, white folks who who want to be useful in the fight for black liberation is to work through that notion that there are no good white people. Um, and, and why that's important is the first piece is that um, one of the issues that we see is that a lot of white people think they're already good or good enough, right? So they don't do any introspection. They aren't able to actively engage critique, right? Because I'm one of the good ones, right? Right. And, so, and a lot of the actions that we see people doing are preoccupied with looking like a good person or not looking bad. And so we put folks in a position where they care more about looking good. So if you're able to let go of this notion that you are a good white person or always wanting to seem like you look like a good white person, then ideally you can step beyond that to really be self-critical and to be able to um, actually, receive, uh, actually receive criticism, right? Actually be held accountable for your actions. Because a lot of times when we're talking about racism, you talk to a white person, you can be very direct and say, you harm me in X way. right? And they'll say, but I'm a good, right? They're, it's instantaneously that I'm a good white person. So if you if you let go of that myth all altogether, we believe that's where you can start doing the work. Now, the flip side of that um, is not masochism, right? It's not uh, self-pity and white people are the worst and like, oh my gosh, I cannot do anything like that's another thing that we see. And that's yeah. also recentering the issue back on white folks, right? And walling in your self-pity. And what we really encourage people to do is let go of this notion of a good white person, right? And also don't be so inwardly focused that you're like, well, I could do nothing. No, but you want to be better. Let's do that, right? Well, <laughs> I love... People, people wh- can't ever get further than that.
2: I want to lift up what I love the most about Safety Pin Box, which is it's really action oriented and targeted to a white consumer, right? So you send a monthly subscription in box form to your white paying customers and give practical, actionable steps that they can take that white women like myself or white people writ large can take to begin to really be introspective, be self-critical, be analytical, not only about yourself, your beliefs, but really your actions and your community. And how you can start right in your own home, dismantling institutions of white supremacy and, and how it really does fall on white folks to be involved in that process from a critical and analytical perspective. And then you're taking the, the money that those clients, that those consumers of the safety pin box are sending to you and re funneling those funds directly to black women in the movement. And you're not dictating how those women use the money, right? It's directly for their own use in, in being sustainable in this time and this climate, which I just, I think is such an awesome model and such a great example of if someone really wants to know what it looks like to be introspective, they can go to your website and get one of those, I believe you have a sample action, right? A sample action, like what comes yeah, in Yeah, we have
1: a sample test that's, that's all about, we have a sample test that's all about assessing power and um in your community and in your personal life and seeing how you can shift it uh, to fight back against white supremacy. Because, I mean, we give the practical piece, we do a lot on the introspection, right? Because part of it is white people working through their own feelings around this, right? Because I believe that um, unpacking whiteness and all of its trappings is part of the work. So that's simultaneously what people do. But a lot of times people think that these issues are so big, right? That they're like, all they can just do is just be sad and, like, reshare sad articles on Facebook, <laughs> mm. you know? Um, and so part of what we do is, is really parse... You learn about an issue, you learn about your role in it and be introspective around that. But Then we really parse it down to, into, like, if you had half an hour today to work on something or half an hour twice a week for a month to work on something, like, what could you actually do? And so that's why the sample task is around power because we found that a lot of people say oh, there's nothing I can do, and they haven't even done an assessment over the power that they hold in their own lives. And when you do an assessment there, you'll find you actually do have a lot of control um, over where your money goes, over your workplace. If you own a home, you have control over that space and how safe it can be to marginalize Um And even just starting there opens up new ideas for people.
2: And I can tell you right now, so many of our listeners are right there of saying, what can I do? I feel powerless in this fight because white supremacy on display in this country right now, especially, feels overwhelming. It feels like I don't know where to begin. It feels, you know, that that shock, that horror, where whether it is fake or not so fake, is baked into our country, right? How do we even begin to dismantle something that feels so big and so overwhelming Uh, you know, even when we have white privilege going for us, it doesn't always feel like one person can change. So I just, I love how you break it down and make it really practical. Is there an example you could give for some of our listeners today who do have a half hour, who do want to examine their own power structures at home, who do want to take action and come up with not just a safety pin, but a safety plan for making marginalized folks in their world a little safer where could we begin, or what what's one action we might be able to start with?
1: Right. Well, I will say that the part of the trick to this is a lot of people want to do work that looks glamorous, and most of the work <laughs> that needs to be done is really unglamorous, yeah. It's menial. it's it takes it does take a long time, even if you only have half an hour times a week. It may take years for you to build the connections that you want to do. Sure. but one of the um well, this month for August, our theme is forget the police hashtag FTP. And uh, we're learning all about police abolition and the idea of abolishing the police and finding community alternatives to police. And one of the really tangible tasks that we're having our members work on is seeing if they can get their whole block, their whole neighborhood block, to agree to a 30-day ban on calling the police into their neighborhood. And so we walk people through that process, part of it, uh, how it first starts is assessing the needs in your community, right? What do people think they need to call the police for? What we find out when people assess those needs is that those the police usually don't solve those needs, right? Or they're not worth bringing somebody who, with a gun in, right? Right. Um, or that the needs can be taken care of inside the community, right? And so, if one of the needs is, um, you know, we have we have people on our block who have mental health issues, right? Um, there's ways that we can address that without the police. So we have people go through with their community and, and talk to your neighbors. What are the needs in your community that you would say you need police for? And then assess, are there ways that you guys can fill it? How would how would you accomplish a 30-day ban on calling the police? Um, and then actually doing it and seeing what a police-free block would look like for you because we know that for uh, black and brown people, for people with mental illnesses, um, as soon as you involve the police in a situation, you're putting that person's life in danger. And most of the things that we call the police for are not something that if you really press this on, that we would say is worth somebody's life. Even if, you know, your, your car got stolen, right? That's you know, people would say, yes, I'm going to call the police on that. Um, but if you ask, should this person die because they stole your car? You'd probably say no. I would hope you would say A rational, reasonable yeah, right, person would right, right. hopefully would say no. Yeah, I think that's such a good... I hope, but you never know in the United States. Uh, but, but you know, you can walk through and say, okay, what do we do if somebody's car gets stolen? Yeah. Well, you can file a police report separately. And there's a non-emergency. Know, bringing the police your community.
2: Right, and a lot of folks don't know that yeah. there's a non-emergency line you can call, too, that doesn't put someone else's life in danger. I think that's a really great right. example. Thank you so much for sharing.
0: Yeah, um, I have one last question. So I'm just curious if you could talk me through... What has the response been like for a project like Safety Pinbox? I certainly have seen um, instances of people kind of using this political and social climate that we are in to—I don't want to say any names—but collect money for perhaps that, that, where that money then goes someplace mm-hmm. we are not actually sure or sure where it goes or who it helps. Mm-hmm. Oh, we name names on this. We name some names. I just—I <laughs> just don't want to get a million yeah. tweets on Twitter being like, "How dare you slam!" Mark Jacobs. It's okay. You don't need to name
1: names. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I already,
0: um, yeah. Probably so, really if you could talk there. me through, so what the, has been the response that's, um, to safety pin box?
1: It was interesting. People, people had issues with us that they don't have with major orgs that actually do squander money. Um, so we had all of these like critiques and stuff. Literally, the, the the day we launched, you know, before we had even sent out any products. Particularly from white men, people were very concerned about, like, what are you doing with all of the money? Like, you guys shouldn't pay yourselves at all, you should give orgs. And we were very upfront, we're a business, we're not a nonprofit. like, boom. Um, so there was a lot of welfare queen trope stuff happening, you know, where people basically were, like, acting like we were going to squander the money. And so it was funny, people would be like, oh, well, you need to give to the ACLU, who we you know is trash now. Or, um, oh, you should give all of your proceeds to Black Lives Matter. I was like, that's interesting. Do you know where their money goes? And then people don't, right? Um, and so there was all of this scrutiny on us precisely because we made the decision to be a business yeah. instead of a nonprofit. And also because uh, people, white folks, expect black folks to educate them on their own problems right. for free, right. which is slavery. <laughs> like, I'm like, if you want me like to work for you for free to unlearn the... White friends that you learn so you could get me to work for you for free? What like, what are we what are we yeah? What are we doing here? You know, it was so ridiculous. But I'll say we got tons, we got multiple hit pieces written on us by quote unquote liberal white dudes who had friggin' Patreon accounts of like tens of thousands of dollars. Right. 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 But um but I will say that all changed the day we started giving out money, which was month two. And it was interesting as we got covered by some pretty mainstream um outlets and publications, particularly when we had a really good piece published in New York magazine and NYMag, which was one of the first outlets to do a hit piece on us actually two months before that. Then you see all of a sudden now that we've become respectable to white people and like we've been mm-hmm. co signed by all these white women and like these different platforms, like all of a sudden people who like did not uh, mess with us yeah. at all at the beginning did not support us at all at the beginning like oh now we want a partner now we want to you know do this and that because now they think that we can give them some form of credibility but we just tried to stay true to our vision since yeah the very beginning and we've given out over a hundred thousand dollars directly to black women wow, wow. That's the beginning amazing. Of January.
2: Since the beginning of January, <laughs> that's incredible. I don't understand how people get off on, you know, saying that you should be doing this for an, in a nonprofit way. I'm thrilled that the value you are providing is valued by this economy, right? That it's actually producing money and that you're putting that money where you see fit because that's how it should be. That to me is like capitalism doing its job <laughs> for a change. Right.
1: right. And the thing is, I've never seen anybody ask what Tim Wise does with his speaking feed.
2: Right, I know.
1: So it was mostly white men who came after us, and then uh, our 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 membership is mostly white women. Yeah. But also, you know, Pantsuit Nation people, when we launched, people were trying to share our safety box stuff in Pantsuit Nation, and the admin kept deleting the post and then said that they wouldn't allow the post because we weren't telling the quote-unquote story, right? But yet, like, they were publishing other people's businesses and stuff like that. So we definitely got resistance from all from all sides, but now that we're more established, now that we've given out a certain amount of money, um, all of a sudden we've become legitimate in certain people's eyes, which is really interesting for me as an activist who was in this movement for years, right, before, and very controversially so, um, before safety pin blocks ever happened, there are a lot of people who refused to recognize my work, particularly with calling out Bernie Sanders and how that changed conversations within the presidential election who all of a sudden now want to get on board because uh, um, our work has been credentialed in a certain way by white people, white orgs, and white women. And so we definitely see our work through safety pin box. And we also recognize that the activists that we support are people that um, folks folks, uh, wouldn't support regularly anyways. So we see ourselves as sort of a buffer to collect white folks' money Um, and give it to people that they normally wouldn't support, that you're not going to see on the TV, that doesn't have tons of Twitter followers, but that's doing great work in their community.
0: That's amazing, Marissa. Um, So where can our listeners find out more about what you're doing?
1: Yeah, you can go to www.safetypinbox.com. Like you said, we have um, the sample task. You can sign up for a subscription there. We have some other really cool things. We have our Safety Pinbox Kids series which is an eight-week series all about how to talk to your kids about race. It's, like, phenomenal. And then we also have um, right now our Not My President box because there's been a lot of conversation around how do we respond to hate crimes and the Nazis marching on the streets yeah. and, you know, Trump presidency. You can go check out um, our Not My President box, and it'll it, that's the box that includes all of the information around creating safety plans and also has a really cool text in there about, How do you talk to your kids about Trump and what Trump's presidency means? So there's tons of resources and content
0: um, on our website. When we come back, we're going to talk through some more ways that you can really be a good ally and help take down this thing called white supremacy. And we're back. And now I'm going to talk a little bit more about how white women can take some more responsibility for ending white supremacy and really kind of owning that it's a thing that we live with. So first, again, I know this might be hard to do because it requires some looking within and some introspection, but really acknowledge your own complicity. Uh, 53% of white women voted for Trump. I know we say this time and time and time again— But I think that's a really, really, really important number. And it's a really, really important thing to just own and sit with.
2: And I think there's this immediate temptation for white folks who didn't vote for Trump, for instance, of which there are lots of us, to say, Yeah, but I'm not one of those white women. I don't even know those white women. I don't even hang out with those white women, or I don't even understand those white women. How can I begin to take responsibility for that? And then I would argue, who better to persuade those white women who have bought into this repackaged white supremacy, 2.0, 3.0, 5.0, wherever we're at, that is 2017, and help make the connection for our fellow white folks between how marching in the street with that tiki torch isn't all that different than make America great again.
0: Right. And I, I'm so glad you brought that up because I can't do that. No. Right? I'm a black woman. I can I will have no, I don't feel like I would have any chance of converting women like that. Yeah. Someone who presents white is going to have a much easier time than me, black woman with natural hair, who's, you know, wearing a hands-off Asada t-shirt to convince them that they've gone gone down a bad path. And not to mention you shouldn't have to.
2: Right. Because A, minorities are tired of fighting these fights, and B, the folks who are being persecuted on the receiving end of injustice, it's not on them to change the oppressor. Totally. so I think it really just lights a fire under my butt to think of, as a white woman, how can I talk to white people more? Not just donating to causes although those are good things to do too, but not just working with people of color, Mm -hmm. not just working on behalf of and for those folks. How can I talk to my relatives who voted for Trump? How can I look inward into my community, into my neighborhood, talking to my Lyft driver on the way to the studio today about... You know, well, why do you feel like the Black Lives Matter movement is racist? Tell me more about that. Like, why do you feel about having those conversations with other white folks?
0: And I think that goes back to something that Marissa said when she mentioned one of the tips for this month was to, if you're a white person, talk to the other white people in your neighborhood and get them to, you know, sign on to not calling the police. That the idea of of having a white asking a white person to talk to another white person about white supremacy, that sounds really hard. That is a high ask, and I think if you are really dedicated to dismantling this and understanding how it shows up in our in our lives and in our spaces and in our world, it's going to take those hard asks, right? Yes. Working with people of color and showing up as a woke ally probably feels like it feels good. Feels good, totally. Talking to your racist auntie who you've been, you know, spending years and years ignoring her racist jokes at Thanksgiving for twenty years—that is hard. That is hard,
2: definitely. And you know who can help is Jody Pico who you might know as being the kind of author of a good beach read that your racist auntie enjoys reading at the beach. Uh, She also, in addition to her incredibly lovely, uh, I think it's mostly fiction writing that she's been a part of, penned this op-ed for Time magazine, which we'll make sure to include in the show notes. And let me tell you, Jodi Picoult, Demonstrates and sort of models what it looks like to be a white woman talking to other white folks about her own revelations on race and coming to not just confront racism, but also acknowledge her complicity and her responsibility in changing it. In that time op ed, she wrote Here's the grievous mistake I had made for the majority of my life. I assumed that racism is synonymous with bias. Yet you could take every white supremacist and ship them off to Mars and you'd still have racism in the world. That's because racism is systemic and institutional, but it is both perpetuated and dismantled in individual acts. So what she really goes on to elaborate is the systemic ways in which white privilege is a thing, which is the basic baseline. We should do a whole episode on white privilege. That's really the baseline conversation. We have to meet folks where they are on this sometimes And say, as she goes on to write, it's more challenging to see the tailwinds of racism, not the overt stuff, but, quote, the ways that being white makes it easier to achieve success. We like to believe that we succeed because we worked hard or because we were smart. It's harder to wrap our heads around the idea that the reason we might have a job or have gained admission to a college is a direct result of the fact that a person of color was never given that opportunity.
0: I think that's so, so, so powerful. Um, Again, when you look back at that racism index, saying things like, you know, they just need to work harder. I worked hard or, you know, things like that. That that really nails why those comments don't actually get at the root of what white supremacy actually is. Right. That systemic acknowledgement
2: of, yes, it's at the core of our history in the United States of America. It's also pervasive in lots of ways across the globe. And these are systemic sort of baked in institutions that we can also make changes on in an individual basis. But instead of, you know, white folks focusing on helping people of color, we got to turn around and talk to our fellow white folks if we're going to really dismantle the institutions of white supremacy.
0: Totally. Because look at, again, look at Charlottesville. You know, I I am just so struck by that interview with the, you know, Charlottesville's Charlotteville killer's mother where it was just clear she had not really checked in about what kind of toxic stuff her son was up to. And so talk to your sons, talk to your daughters, talk to your cousins and your your you know your husbands. Don't just let something toxic fester within them because it's uncomfortable to talk about. Right. If we had
2: experienced the same kind of tragedy, except it was, I don't know, a Muslim American. And instead of a car being driven into a crowd, it were an explosive device. We would be blaming his friends and family for not alerting the police. But instead, because this is a white perpetrator and because this is an act of racist violence, we don't treat that like the terrorism that it really is. And that's, that's a, a problematic framing, in my opinion, that has everything to do with race. And that's really quite similar. This idea that letting something like racism fester because you assume it's benign or you assume it's not going to kill someone or harm someone else is really problematic. And it's something that April Harder, a licensed counselor and social worker, wrote about on Medium.com when she wrote the blog post How America Spreads the Disease That Is Racism by Not Confronting Racist Family Members and Friends. She writes, Racism is complex in scope, because it is both a mental illness and a value. In other words, it is a valued, sheltered, and protected mental illness. One might even say it has been incubated and allowed to fester throughout the course of American history. She goes on to write, quote, like all illnesses, it needs to be treated in order for it to be cured. The problem is that we don't see racism as a problem because we don't see it for what it is, an infectious disease, it has been an epidemic plaguing
0: our nation. I think that's so fascinating. I can't help but be reminded of this movie from a few years ago, American History X. Yes, definitely. It's the guy who is a complete, I guess, skinhead, right? Like Nazi he's got, skinhead, a Nazi yeah, Nazi tattoos, sure. You know, the works. And he does all this awful stuff throughout the movie. And then at the very end of the movie, you realize that the early seed of his ideology is that his dad, who is presented as this stand-up, great guy, firefighter, community guy, father would make comments about black people right. at the dinner table, casual things. And that seeing that, that was an it, it's implied that that was an early seed that kind of grew into something that wasn't a comment here or there, but that was really violent. Right.
2: I'm so glad you brought that up because it's about his rehabilitation right. and then his return home.
0: Right. It, and it, it is treated like going to rehab. It's right. treated as that kind of a right. thing where it's not, you know— it's not like, oh, I became friends with a black guy and then it went away. It's like, no, it's a, it's a the same way that you would have to get something out of your right. system through work. That's what it's presented yeah. as.
2: It's, it's getting rid of hate, right? And that is admirable work um, that a lot of folks are doing and a lot of folks need to do. So a couple other quick takeaways, some actionable items for, especially the white women listening who are saying, okay, I get it. I have to talk to my uncomfortable relatives who don't want to talk about race, but that's part of my job here as a white woman to dismantle white supremacy. What else can we do? There's an article that I also want to just shed light on by Courtney Ariel uh, called For Our White Friends Desiring to be Allies. And she just has some really quick, great tips that I found very instructive. And the first was for white women to listen more and talk less. And the way I like to think of this is to pass
0: the mic oh i love that because again like we were talking about before it can be a weird balance of either say making it all about you and your emotions and spraying your emotions everywhere or just feeling really resigned like i'm so sad what can i do both of those are a way of sort of making it about you, you but yeah. what's important is to not make it about you
2: yeah and The first temptation might be to go on Facebook and scream virtually, right? To just share every, you know, every thought and feeling and tweet about it and write your own piece. But there's also a really strong case for saying, this is not a moment for you and your brand to capitalize on, which as a business owner was challenging to figure out exactly how do we respond to these kinds of crises without saying that this is our issue and that we're the experts on this. It's about passing the mic and making sure that we're being megaphones, especially for women of color or people of color who are doing this work every single day, not just when tragedy strikes and not just when it's all in the headlines.
0: And not just when it's in style, because it's in style to call out Nazis right now. It's in style to call out white supremacists right now. It hasn't always been so fun. It hasn't always been in vogue. You know, I spent a good portion of my life being called things like a social justice warrior or, you know, the PC police or, you know several other things that I can't say on this show, it hasn't always been a cool thing to stand up against racism and against white supremacy. And I think it's a good thing to do, but I think it's worth noting that if you do things when it's easy to do, you should examine that.
2: Other ways to be a true ally, other than simply not wanting to be racist, which Courtney Ariel writes, thank you for that, by the way. But she says, being an ally requires you to educate yourself about systemic racism in this country. So if you are looking for a reading list, if you are aware that you're unaware of this stuff, here's a great reading list that Courtney Ariel actually gives you some some literature to start on. And I'm, su- I'm sure we have stuff to add to this. But Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, ta Coates's Coates' Between the World and Me, and Claudia Rankine's Citizen. There are really so many other great books and articles that we'll link to in the notes below, but we encourage you to use your voice and influence to direct folks to educating themselves and to do the hard work of educating ourselves, too. Yeah,
0: I think it's hard work. I think it's important to do. Um, just one note, when you get really fired up about all the, all these things you're reading, don't reach out to your friend of color unless their job is working in, in, in an anti-oppression space. Don't reach out to your friend of color uh who, who doesn't work in the anti-oppression space and ask them to do this labor of helping you unpack this for you. This is something that a journey that folks should be taking on their own, finding resources, Googling, using resources that are out there like Safety Pin Box or other anti-oppression, you know, trainings. But don't put this on your black friend because they're probably going through enough right now.
2: Yeah, and they're probably asked to do this more than they should be. So That's just real. remember it's not on minorities to solve and end white supremacy. And the other way I thought that we as well-meaning white folks can be led astray sometimes is something that Courtney points out in this article, which is the chiming in on social media. The idea that she writes, for one out of every three opinions or insights shared by a person of color in your life, try to resist the need to respond with a better or different insight about something that you've read or listened to as it relates to their shared opinion. Sometimes your unique take isn't all that helpful.
0: Or appreciated, I would say. (laughs) I've definitely had times where, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to have a dialogue with other women of color and very well-meaning, but like a little unappreciated. It's like, oh, well, that's just like blah, blah, blah. And we're all thinking, oh, well, thanks for your insight. Um, Just be a little mindful. Yeah. Listen.
2: I mean, it's hard. I I get it. I'm the queen interrupter over here. I get it. The instinct can be to jump in with your opinion and your thought and your sharing. Sometimes asking questions and listening intently and just letting yourself learn is the best possible thing you can do. And it's a a balancing act because it can feel—even writing this episode, coming up with this topic, saying— Wait a second. At one point, very early on after Charlottesville, I asked my Twitter followers, what do you think white women's involvement or white people's involvement in dismantling white supremacy should be? Because for a second, I was hearing and reading, white women, this is not your time to make this your Mm. moment to speak out. And I'm thinking, is it not, like, should I not take the initiative on this? But I ended up coming to the conclusion that I'm not going to capitalize on this right. but we sure as hell are going to take the time and I'm I want to make it my prerogative to cover this topic thoroughly.
0: Well, I think you just you just highlighted kind of an age-old debate of do we uplift women of color and folks of color or do we speak out do white women speak out themselves? I think that's a I think yeah. I see a lot of folks wrestling with that. Yeah. Um I don't have the answer. I think it's about a balance. I think it's about I- speaking up and using your white privilege when you can in a way that is not making it about you, that is not capitalizing, that's certainly not taking money because of the suffering of folks of color. Um, That should go with that saying. Right. But in a way that is that is brave and that is real and authentic.
2: I also think that they're not mutually exclusive. I always like to say lift as you climb, which is a phrase that's been involved in the social justice movement, especially on behalf of women of color for a long time. I learned when I saw it imprinted on a banner at the National Museum of African-American History and Culture here in D.C. But lifting as you climb to me is about, yeah, do the work, make your voice heard, but make sure you're bringing women of color up with you and you're make you know making sure that their voices are heard too. I think, I dare to say that this podcast is a pretty fine example of that in action.
0: I hope so. Right? I hope so.
2: I think so. I think we can we can always strive to continue to learn and grow together.
0: That's like our our unofficial (laughs) motto. I love it. We say it a lot. I like it. You know.
2: Now, these are just some of the ways that you can take practical, instructive action to end white supremacy and for us women in particular to own the ways in which women have always been a part of white supremacy here in the United States and beyond. And I really wanna thank you, our listeners, for leaning into the discomfort that can be this topic and for listening with hopefully open minds and hearts and understanding that it's our intention here at Stuff Mom Never Told You to not shy away from really tough, burly, complicated issues like this and somehow hopefully package it together in a in a research-driven and actionable snippet for you to, to consume on your way to work or back.
0: Yes, yeah, so we want to hear from all of y'all out there, whether you're a white lady who's sort of grappling with this, whether you're a fed up, pissed off person of color because I'm there with you much of the time. We want to hear from you. How has white supremacy played out in your life? What are some ways that you've been tackling it? How are you dealing with it? You can reach us on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You, on Twitter at Mom stuff podcast, or via email at stuff at HowStuffWorks.com.